Kaseya and the Rebel ransomware attack, what really happened, and how healthcare entities should prepare for potential spillover from Russia's hybrid war. These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hi, I'm Anna Delaney. In case you haven't caught it yet, episode six of the Ransomware Files podcast is live, which centers around the Reval ransomware gang's attack against the US software company Kaseya last year. Series creator ISMG's Jeremy Kirk takes us through the twists and turns of this gripping event. Here's a taster. The R Evil ransomware gang's attack against the U.S. software company Kaseya last year is not only amongst the largest ransomware attacks of all time, but it's also one of the most intriguing. It involves the use of zero-day software vulnerabilities known only to a handful of people. It's a race between attackers trying to snare ransom payments and defenders developing a patch. There's also a secret operation that hacked back against the R Evil hackers. And in the end, a rare action happened. Someone was actually arrested. Episode 6 of the Ransomware Files podcast speaks to those who had a role in this incredible event. It also coincides with the release of new technical information about the software vulnerabilities exploited by the ransomware gang. Those vulnerabilities were found by the Dutch Institute for Vulnerability Disclosure, or DIVD. Our evil managed to exploit zero-day vulnerabilities in the Virtual Systems Administrator. Now that's remote management software made by Kaseya. It's widely used by managed service providers to manage their clients' IT systems. The vulnerabilities allowed the group to spread its ransomware, which was disguised as a software update. Frank Bradyke is manager of DIVD's Computer Security Incident Response Team. He says DIVD had warned Kaseya of the vulnerabilities in April, but R-Evil also discovered them. After R-Evil attacked Kaseya's software, Bradyke and DIVD felt they'd lost the race with the attackers. Well, together, together with Kaseya, we were in this marathon to, to fix software that had quite a bit of technical debt in it. And then with the finish line inside, on your right-hand side, all of a sudden comes Usain Bolt, passes you, flips you the bird, ransoms a whole bunch of systems and, and beats you to the finish line. So our evil attacked the VSA installations in MSPs, but that meant that the clients of MSPs were also infected. So it ended up that 1,500 organizations were infected with the R evil ransomware. Robert Chaffee is founder of Progressive Computing, which is a New York-based managed service provider that used Kaseya's VSA. Chaffee feared he might lose his business after speaking with a colleague on the day of the attack, which was July 2nd, 2021. All 80 of his customers were infected. And it was around uh, lunchtime because I was in my kitchen when um, my director of operations came upstairs and was walking down the hall. I had a clear line of sight to see him out the kitchen uh, door and I knew something was wrong. I knew something was dreadfully wrong because he was pale white and I had commented to uh, one of my team members who was sitting next to me to say, I think somebody just died because that was the look on Jay's face. Jay looked like he was coming to deliver uh, some really bad news about somebody's death. Um, and then when I approached him to ask him what happened and he began to tell me that uh, all of our customers were ransomwared and that the phones were ringing off the hook, uh, it even took me a few moments of questioning him uh, because I was in disbelief myself. He was already in, you know, uh, 
a, a few layers deep into that uh, shock. And I was just starting to experience the first tastes of that shock because I couldn't comprehend the words coming out of his mouth uh, that all of our customer, I was, uh, all of our customers were ransomware. It, it just didn't make sense to me. What, how is it that everyone is ransomware? That, that's, no, that you're wrong, Jay. Like, th there's got to be a different answer here. There were other twists and turns. The FBI and its law enforcement partners hacked back at the hackers and snatched a universal decryption key. And after the R Evil gang went dark for good, prosecutors announced the arrest of a Ukrainian man, Yaroslav Vasinsky, for the attack against Kaseya. Vasinsky is now awaiting trial in Texas. There's more to this story, of course, so please have a listen to episode six of the Ransomware Files. It's available on ISMG's websites and wherever you get your podcasts. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. The Health Information Sharing and Analysis Center is closely assessing the Russia-Ukraine war to assist its members, as well as other healthcare sector entities, to prepare for the potential known and yet unknown cybersecurity threats that could affect them, says HISAC President Denise Anderson. She spoke with the executive editor of our healthcare infrastructure site, Marion Kolbasok-McGee, on the security considerations that the healthcare industry should bear in mind at this time. So obviously there is concern and we're monitoring as, as closely as possible the threat landscape. Right now, we've not seen anything targeted to U.S. healthcare, but obviously there's concern around spillover for something like a, a Petya, not Petya type situation. So it, we are encouraging our members to be vigilant, to make sure that they're patched to the latest version of applicable software. And DHS's CISA has published um, a Shields Up report that's very useful and shows the vulnerabilities that they should be looking at in their environment and making sure that they're patched and up to date on those particular vulnerabilities. So just basic good cyber hygiene, be vigilant, be in touch with the situational awareness and know that there, if there's any threats or campaigns that are out there. And of course, just being diligent and making sure that they can be resilient in their operations. And finally, I am tuning in from Chicago this week as we held another successful in-person summit in the last month. Yes, you heard correctly, we are back to live conferences. So what was it like returning to an in-person event? Well, I spoke with my colleague Tom Field, Senior Vice President of Editorial, about what the experience was like for him, as well as how ready we actually are as a community to embrace the conference halls again. So, Tom, we had our Chicago Summit this week, our second in-person event in two years. How did it feel to be back? Okay, take a step back. We didn't just have our Chicago Summit in our second event in two years. You and I had the chance to meet for the first time in two years of working together. So let's start there. Yeah, amazing, right? I feel like, you know, working with the team, yourself, every day, we know each other, but then just meeting was something else. It was fantastic. And just to hang out and have time together, that's been invaluable. And that plays a role in the event because we got to see people that we've interacted with virtually over the past two years or pick up relationships that we had when we were meeting in person before COVID. And I think that lent a big part to what made this past event and the one we have before special is you're getting the chance to bring the community together again. And you, you just can't undersell that. Yes, there really was a great energy, fruitful conversations. And I really feel people are ready to return to live events 
because in a way, our virtual lives continue daily meetings over Zoom and Teams. And yet there's nothing quite like the in-person experience. Back to the Chicago summit. What were the highlights for you? Yeah, I'll get to that. But I will say, I think one of the struggles we have now, it's not work-life balance, it's virtual and actual balance. Mm. Yeah. Because while we're at these actual events, the virtual schedule doesn't diminish. I think it's the same for our attendees as well as for us. We have filled this time so thoroughly over the past two years that finding the balance between virtual and actual is going to be a challenge going forward. To answer your questions, there are the topics that we discussed, and then there are the topics that are hanging over everybody. Topics we discussed. I had discussions about ransomware. How can you not? and what organizations are doing to better prepare themselves, whether that's employing the the zero trust architecture as much as they can to eliminate some of the phishing emails that come through and, and slip through, what they're doing to go through tabletop exercises, how they're working with their supply chain to diminish risk and, and opportunity for the attacker. So healthy discussions about ransomware, which you'd expect. Cyber insurance, again, which you'd expect. Cyber insurance is needed more than ever. It's harder to get than ever. So we had a healthy discussion with some cyber insurers and the CISOs that we had in attendance about where this is headed and what role the threat landscape is having on this now and what organizations can be doing going forward to ensure that they're meeting the standards that are necessary now to even qualify for cyber insurance. You could not avoid talking about Log4J, software supply chain security, which was a huge topic and undercurrent of what we discussed. I think that what came across there was it was Log4J in December. It was Spring Shell a week ago. What's next? And what are we doing to better ensure the integrity of our software supply chain security? And what role does the software bill of materials play going forward? That was a theme that we discussed on our stage and even in our roundtable discussions. And of course, hanging over all of this is what's going on in Eastern Europe and what the blowback is going to be from the West pushing back against Russia and the invasion of Ukraine. The president himself came out two weeks ago and talked about repercussions that organizations might feel. Organizations, CISOs are talking about that. No, I think that was a, an undercurrent of our discussions throughout the event. What do you think is the appetite for live events going forward? I think the appetite is strong because there's this, I mean, we're, we're communal beings. We need to be together. We need to share. And what you can get from these live events is so much richer than much richer than what you're going to get over Zoom or over Teams or whatever your collaboration software of choice is because you have the opportunity to interact directly. You can read facial expressions, you can respond to body language, you can go pursue someone afterwards and ask a question. And then there are the incidental meetings that you have at the table you're sitting at or over a break or over lunch. And the, the opportunities you have to talk with sponsors and other speakers and other attendees, you can't, again, undersell the networking opportunities. So I think that the appetite is strong. Now, I also will say at every live event I've done so far in the past month, whether it's a conference or whether it's a roundtable discussion, I've talked to at least one person that has said to me, this is the first time in two years I have been into the city or I've been here or I've made this type of, of an opportunity to get out. There's still a lot of that. There's still a lot of people emerging from COVID caves and coming out into the world. And I think that there's going to be a tentative aspect to that, particularly coming to large conference centers, maybe not so much to intimate dinners and roundtables and lunches, 
but I think that there's going to be some hesitation that we all are going to have to get through. It's not a matter of just going back the way things were, because things have changed, as we were talking about with the, the struggle between the virtual and the actual. So it's not going back to the way things were. It's figuring out the way things are going to be going forward. I do not think that events are going to go away by any means. We need them. We need these opportunities. Yeah, for sure. So going forward, what's next? Where are we going to meet? <laughs> you have a home game. We are going to be in London over a month in May. Yeah, really looking forward to that. Hopefully more people will be emerging at that point and we'll have some fruitful discussions. But I'm encouraged, Anna, because I think that, you know, certainly London has been active in, in, in becoming active again and getting out and opening up the community and bringing people together. And I think it is going to be a different conversation because we're bringing security leaders together in London, which is a lot closer to what's happening in Eastern Europe than we are from Chicago or from Seattle. That is going to be a topic of discussion. You know, we've talked for years about the difference between cybersecurity in times of peace and cybersecurity in times of war and the different mindset. We're there. This is, this is real. We have a different mindset and the conversations are different. We aren't just talking about reporting relationships and budgets and staffing crisis. We're talking about active supply chain attacks. We're talking about rampant ransomware. We're talking about nation state activity that's impacting real enterprises and their partners. I don't think it can get much more critical than this. I hope it doesn't because this is about as vital as it gets. Indeed. Well, see you in London. We will see each other in London. I look forward to it, Anna. Thank you. Same here. Thanks, Tom. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time. Music.